Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Michael Peterson, the president of Androscoggin Valley Hospital in Berlin, New Hampshire. Androscoggin Valley Hospital is part of North Country Healthcare, a system of four critical access hospitals in the North Country of New Hampshire. In this podcast, I talk with Mike about his career, which includes 28 years of service to the Eastern Maine Health System, where he worked his way up from part-time work in college through being a licensed social worker, later moving into information systems, and then back to operations, to ultimately being the chief operating officer at Sebastocook Valley Health before coming to Androscoggin in 2015. I really enjoyed talking with Mike, and I think you will especially enjoy his insights about leadership and the experience of being a new hospital president. I have produced an extended version of the interview that covers Mike's career leading up to and including his work at Androscoggin, and an abridged version of the interview begins with his work at Androscoggin. You're listening to the extended version. If you'd like to listen to the abridged version, please check our website for the link. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be accessing this recording. Also, I'm excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening. And here is Mike Peterson. Welcome to The Forge, Mike. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you today. You went to the University of Maine at Orono and studied public administration. Why did you choose to attend the University of Maine? And why did you study public administration? My folks were both alumni of University of Maine and uh, actually had considered going out of state for college. I grew up in northern Maine, but after interviewing at a bunch of colleges, it, it was pretty clear to me that I wanted to stay in the state of Maine, and especially in, in New England, if I could. And the University of Maine, it was a natural fit with, with both folks being uh, alumni. So it, public administration specifically, it was uh, it struck my interest. There was, at the time, no healthcare administration, undergraduate program. Public administration was basically the closest thing. Okay. It had a lot of similar uh, curricula, so that's that's where I got into. And you have family connection to healthcare. Your mom was a OB nurse and your father was a hospital CEO. Did, yes. did that influence your, your interest in healthcare? Absolutely. I actually tell the story at every job interview I've ever gone to. I was probably 13 or 14 years old when I first got exposed to the concept of healthcare administration following my dad around the hospital and seeing how he interacted with, with folks and uh, realized that it was, it, he was getting as much reward out of the interaction as they were and vice versa. So it was meaningful work. It seemed like there was something important going on there. I knew he wasn't a doctor. I knew he wasn't a nurse. But I knew that healthcare was the industry I was going to get into. That's just, it struck a nerve that early in my, uh, in my life. Uh, now, so I thought I was going to be a clinician. And I, I used to ski in high school. And one day between races, I was skiing where I wasn't supposed to be and was out of bounds, ended up falling, breaking my back. Oh, wow. And actually, I had to ski down the mountain With on a broken on back because oh. they couldn't get, the, the, get to me. 
but basically, because my dad was who he was, I got to see my own CT scan. As I went in for my CT, the tech said, do you want to see your images? I said, sure, it popped around. And as I was looking at the slices coming up, I saw the bulging disc and the broken, you know, the herniated disc and the, bulge, the broken lumbar, and I uh, almost passed out looking at my own image. So it was pretty clear to me I was never going to make it through gross anatomy. <laughs> so I had to kind of change gears a little bit and say, I'm not going to be a clinician. But healthcare obviously was still very interesting to me. I wanted to be in that industry, and I figured out that I really still could add value. Maybe I couldn't be someone who takes care of patients, but I could be someone who takes care of the people who do. And so that's why I stayed interested in healthcare moving along. It was from those early years. To a degree, that was a very big advantage for me because I had to focus you know, I, I always knew that was going to be my area of focus. When I got into college, it just clicked. I, I consumed every healthcare management kind of course there was at the time available, and it just it, it clicked. I found that I was, it, it came naturally. It was fun to be a facilitator of problems and solutions. But what I found also was I like to solve problems not in a one-to-one relationship. I always like to see, okay, what other problems are on the periphery? Mm. What solution options are there that could maybe solve things that we hadn't even thought about? And the synergy you know, that naturally happens when you look at things kind of globally as opposed to a one-to-one relationship. And uh, did that all the way through uh, my undergraduate degree. As a matter of fact, I was taking grad-level courses in MHA programs out of other colleges that had an arrangement with the University of Maine just because there there wasn't anything else to offer there in the public administration. But I knew I didn't want to be a city manager either. Okay, um, which is kind of the public administration That's right, that's right. And a lot of similarities, you know, strategic planning, capital planning, communications, and so forth, budgeting is all, you know, the the, the basics, but I needed that specific healthcare-related stuff. So I went through the University of Maine at Augusta, picked up some courses and so forth, and basically uh, graduated with my undergrad in, in public administration. From there, of course, went to Husson College, mm-hmm. and uh, they were just at the onset of trying to have an accredited MHA program. But at the time, it wasn't; it didn't have enough accredited uh, f- faculty to okay. be an MHA. So I have a Master's of Science of Business with a focus in healthcare administration, um, which was great. I mean, it was, a, yeah. it was a, so you went straight from undergrad to grad. Yeah, yeah. Okay. While I was in the uh, the mindset, uh, I was still working full time, of course, okay. but in the mindset of studying and so forth, I, I just kept going, got my master's uh, right after right okay. after my undergraduate. All right. So your first job uh, in healthcare was as a project manager for administrative services at Acadia Hospital in Bangor, uh, Bangor, Maine. How did you come to work at Acadia? Well, actually, that wasn't my first job. That was just the first job that's listed on my current CV. It was too long. My first job in healthcare actually was in 1988. I was in plant operations at the Aroostook Medical Center up in Presque Isle. I was doing everything from running conduit for electrical lines in the OB floor to pouring concrete for a pad of a satellite dish for the first telemedicine system in the hospital, painting lines on the the pavement, mowing the grass, you name it. I was doing doing all kinds of stuff in plant operations. Wow. Um, okay. And it exposed me to basically every aspect of the hospital, um, which was really cool. It was doing that summers between you know, uh, high schooling and college. From there, during college, I uh, interned for a while at the Eastern Maine Medical Center in community relations, public relations. 
And then right after my undergrad graduation, I went to work for a subsidiary of the Acadia Hospital called Aspen Ledge. It was a, a um, adolescent teen housing unit for, okay. for kids with behavioral issues. And that's how I got into Acadia. Acadia, okay. Uh, so be- between the Aspen Ledge and Acadia Hospital, actually I was at in the Access Center at the Acadia Hospital, which was a 100-bed acute care behavioral and psych substance abuse facility. Wow. The Access Center was basically intake and registration. So I literally was taking phone calls from people at rock bottom, you know, and helping them get into the, the hospital and get the services they need. And I did that for a few years and realized, wow, this is not my gig. Yeah. This is over my head in terms of being able to, to do this hard, hard job yeah. in terms of, and I have ultimate respect for people who can help take care of people at that point in their lives. It's really trying. Yeah. So I did that for three years. Actually did have a, I got my LSW. Um, oh, really? Yeah, LSW2 oh, wow. for a while just to kind of help. Licensed so, license social, social worker. worker right? Okay. But that wasn't my background, wasn't my education. I was still currently in school for healthcare administration, you know. Okay. But so I, I needed to, a change. That's when I moved into uh, administration and, and project management. And basically it's because in the, the department that we were working at the time, we were all paper-based. These are patients who were calling in before they were ever registered, so they didn't have a record. And so we, were, we had cabinets full of these intake forms, basically, that was just uh, you know, taking up all kinds of space and we were filing through stuff. This was back in 1992. So no EMR, no, none yeah, of sure. that, so forth. So I pitched an idea to my, my boss at the time and I said, I think we can do this better with a database. Why don't we, you know, and she said, take some time, couple days, research what options there are and make a proposal. Okay. So I did. And they actually, it, that led to a project that lasted about six or eight months working with information technology at EMH, excuse me, EMMC at the time. And it, it led to basically the first computerized pre-patient database for Acadia Hospital that was in, in use for many, many years. Did you get something um, off the shelf or did you no, build we did, it? No, we built it from scratch. Oh, wow. And so okay. basically it did the research and worked with IT and we designed and built it with the staff and figured out how to make it work and we implemented it. And that was my first exposure to any IT in, okay. in healthcare. Yeah, because um, I wanted to ask you about how did, how did you absolutely. make that jump? I'll yeah. get there. Yeah. Okay. It was, it's, it's an interesting track. So anyway, after that was rolled out, the administration was impressed enough saying, you know, here's a guy that started from scratch with an idea, a concept, and went to all through project execution. We could use some project management help. So I was tapped by the uh, COO at the time and said, would you like to come work for us? We are um, working on developing out the hospital's department structure. It was a brand new hospital, remember, in 1992, Acadia Hospital opened, and it was from scratch. So I was in kind of on the ground floor. And so at that time, I then had a matrix reporting relationship as a result of that project and working with IT. So I went to work for the Acadia COO and the system CIO at the time. So that was my first exposure to matrix reporting as well. Okay, And it was great. I, I was effectively the department head of the first ever IT department at Acadia, got to write policies from scratch, you know, hired the staff from, from scratch, and then was also tapped to do some you know, special projects for administration at the behest of the COO. So it was really interesting. It was wow. you know, 
never the same day twice. And that's yeah. really all I look for in a job is never a dull moment and never the same day twice. So that got me exposed to IT and started me working down that track as well. A few years later, uh, we had a big date looming, which was Y2K. Right. And so a CIO at the time said, would you like to manage that project for the entire system? Sure, I'm not going to turn that down. So 1998, I moved on to um, up to the corporate level and okay. started working for the system as the, the Y2K project director. So this is, you moved from Acadia to Eastern Maine Health Systems. Correct. So well, at the time, it was Eastern Maine Health Care. It wasn't okay. systems yet, but uh, okay. yes. How big was it at the time? EMH was, there were 15 business units at the time, probably okay. about 6,000 6, plus employees um, representing Three, three tertiary hospitals, a couple of smaller hospitals, for-profit arm, and two nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities. Sorry, okay. at the time, but but fifteen different business units. Wow, that time. and so you were working on policy that affected all of those. Well, I was working on the, that project Y two K. That yeah, that all of those boards representative were were my bosses effectively okay. with working with the CIO. So okay. that was my first exposure to the system and the multiple organizations within a system, which yeah. was really intriguing because I, I really enjoyed starting to get to know and, and recognize the difference between each business unit, you know, the, the hospitals versus the uh, skilled nursing facilities versus the for-profit arm, you know, the pharmacy and collections and warehouse and so forth, and the culture and the, you know, the agenda, the vision behind each one of them. It was, it was intriguing that how different they were, but how similar in some... In, in Even though they were all part of yeah, absolutely. Eastern, Eastern One system, Maine. yet multiple member organizations, different cultures. Mm-hmm. But what was really great about that was the natural synergy that happens when you bring different people to the table to solve or work on the same problem, the ideas are amazing, you know, and how one organization can actually be looking out for another when we're all working together. And so that was my first exposure to the value of synergy bringing systems together. I never forgot that. I'll get back to that later. So Y2K, though, was a... uh, Pretty big project. I mean, you know, eight million dollar budget, four hundred plus people at, at peak. You know, yeah. with uh, managing that project, but it was a uh, anticlimactic kind of result. You know, I spent New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety nine, in a conference room with some uh, sparkling apple cider, uh-huh. um, waiting for the things that we knew that were going to happen happen, and then the next few hours, you know, waking hours, doing some interviews and so forth with uh, local TV stations because it was all over and nobody died, you know, right. and it was a dead end job by by definition. By morning, <laughs> <laughs> well, a few weeks, uh, yeah. few months of cleanup yeah, for documentation sure. to get the legal stuff taken yeah. care of and yeah. archiving information, yeah. but yeah, pretty much. But the much. lights didn't was, go out. So everything was good. No, everything was good. So very briefly for for listeners who maybe were small children at the time that this Mm -hmm. happened, what was was Y2K? What was the concern? Oh, sure. Well, there was a tactic used in early days of coding to save lines, save space by abbreviating the year field in most programs we found from 1970, for example, just down to two digits, 70. And so we had to go back into all of these fields when it turned to 2000, instead of the computer programmer or software, whatever the application might be, thinking it is 1900, 
it was actually 2000. So a lot of, a lot of uh, software companies or vendors chose to mitigate the problem different ways. Some expanded their fields you know, to four digits and put in a conversion table that says anything prior to 1939 would become a two, two zero something at that time, so 2000, 2001. Anything since would remain as a 19, like 40. Yeah. You know, so that was one style. Another was they basically just said, no, everything two digits is gonna be 2000 something. And then others decided, you know what, our, our code's too difficult, this is too big, we're just getting out. We're selling the business, so we're just gonna well, yeah. end. So there were some vendors that said, as of December 31st, January uh, 1999, we're done. Yeah. You better be on a new platform, a new software, a new application by then. So it was two years worth of work. and uh, So you had to look at all the systems in the hospital and try to figure out. We created the very first, at the time for our system anyway, very first complete inventory of all systems, all vendors, all applications. I mean, it just had never been done before. And then had to do a very robust you know, investigation with every single one of them on high priority, you know, what's going to affect a patient care or what a failure of this could do. It forced us actually, when they're still using it today, many hospitals are, to do contingency planning based on scenarios. There's no possible way you could plan for any everything. So you think about, okay, what happens if the water goes out for any reason? And so what do you do? So we had, you know, libraries of contingency plans built um, that were tested, some sometimes just a tabletop discussion of what ifs, to all the way to doing drills. You know, okay, shut off the water. What do we do? You know, we call in the city with a tanker truck. Do you plug it into the fire system? You, you name it. We, we ran all these scenarios. It was a lot of work to get ready for basically uh, what we've benefited now is disaster drills. Right. So Y2K effectively was a great way to tee up disaster planning. Oh, interesting. And that's yeah. how we've kind of yeah. leveraged, you know, the lessons learned that um, that night. And often a lot of people say, well, okay, so, you know, a lot of work for nothing. And I said, no, I, I think it's the other way. It was a lot of nothing because of the work. Right. You know, we did a lot of planning. And there were systems that we knew would fail, but the vendors had said, well, here's the fix. It's yeah. going to fail. You just go into the code and change the date setting after the failure, and you'll be fine. So there was some work to do okay. the night of, okay. but it was those were fewer and farther between. The vast majority of the things, okay, so it went from 99 to 00. It didn't affect the application or the function at all. It didn't affect you know, the delivery of care at all. We just knew it was okay. Yeah. So a lot of time spent putting Y2K approved yeah. stickers on things <laughs> and so forth. But you had to check, you know, heaven forbid. The lawyers were coming out of school going, okay, we're gonna get everybody. And it's nothing against the lawyers. They, we, nobody knew what was gonna happen. We just didn't wanna put anybody in harm's way. Yeah. So we had to go through the due diligence. What was it like managing such a big project relatively early in your career? Yeah, you 400 people, and it was intriguing. I mean, I, I didn't manage 400 people on my own. I had a team, right, right. Um, and I mean. every business unit had point people and so forth, and they reported to their local, you know, administration and boards and so forth. So it was really about facilitation, mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess that was the lesson I learned was the value in not doing everything yourself, but using. Uh, others and facilitating getting things done, but also though being accountable for making sure things were getting done. So uh, it was a great experience, a great education for me, especially in project management. I mean, I, I got it was a, a huge uh, immersion kind of project management 
education experience, real world. This is a big project, but I did also learn the value of deadlines. When there's an absolute non-negotiable deadline, things change a little bit in terms of negotiating time, or, uh, excuse me, money or quality. Quality was non-negotiable. We had to deliver. It made pitching for budget fairly easy. Because <laughs> yeah. you couldn't extend the timeline. You right. know, we can't kick yeah. this down the road a year. December so there's some value in coming. It. it was coming no and we knew when it was coming. <laughs> so we had a very clear, you know, critical path of milestone checkoff dates. And are we yeah. ahead behind? Allocation of resources was relatively speaking a little easier when there were absolute you know, deadlines looming, okay. so. So you had started at Acadia mm-hmm. in, in a Eastern Maine health, was it healthcare at the time? Eastern Maine Healthcare Hospital, So yeah. you started at Acadia in an Eastern Maine healthcare system facility, you moved up to, to the corporate level, and then after you finished with the Y2K project, you went on to Eastern Maine Medical Center, which Correct. is also a Eastern Maine Right, actually system. Eastern Maine Medical Center was um, how, where EMHS, EMH was born. I mean, uh, the Acadia Hospital um, used to be a wing of EMMC and the Behavioral Health Wing, it just got too big, so it, the, that creation of that hospital was the genesis for EMH at the time. So it was the first hospital, still is the, the flagship hospital of the system. So, so how did how did Eastern Maine Healthcare now Eastern Maine Health System kind of come about? What was why did it evolve as a system? It, it was really because of that. I okay. mean, now there were multiple hospitals that were um, being supported, and the, the vision there was to be a more of a utility or service support structure for multiple hospitals. Okay. So it was the brainchild of a gentleman named Bob Brandau, who at the time was the CEO of EMMC, and uh, they worked together to. Um, develop the the support network for these two hospitals. Initially, I think there were only three employees at the system. It was really about being a support service to these two hospitals. From there, though, it became uh, a vehicle for supporting other subsidiaries and affiliates and so forth because of the economies of scale, the opportunities that that has for for negotiating contracts and so forth with vendors, suppliers, payers, you name it. I mean, kind of the standard low-hanging fruit. Okay. Um, it's evolved since then, of course, as far as uh, yeah. what its intent is. Um, okay. But. So you went to Eastern Maine mm-hmm. Medical Center, and you were the director of surgical and imaging systems. Correct. Now this is a operational role. So you yes. left IT and went into an operational role. How yep. was the? How was that change for you? Well, it was kind of the path I was hoping in, to look for. Again, I had always kind of envisioned how do I get from point A to point B. Point B being a you know senior executive or CEO president of a, a healthcare organization. So I knew that. Um, IT is very interesting and it exposed me to all of the departments of the hospital, um, but I needed to get some operational experience in clinical areas. So I had, of course, performed work for, through the Y2K project, these departments. And at the time, the patient care administrator tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, I, I know your job's coming to an end here. I think we've got some roles for you. I had just completed my master's program at that time, and I really enjoyed the mentoring, the teaching component of like the project work that we had at Hassan. A lot of the work we did in our master's program was team-oriented and projects and learning from your colleagues as well as teaching your colleagues. You know, the, um, my fellow students and I, we got as much out of each other as we did from the faculty, and that's as designed. So it really, it was a great opportunity for me to practice my newfound skills or newly, you know, minted uh, degree 
by helping to uh, mentor the clinical nurse department heads of these departments into some of the like basics on how to read a responsibility report, how to prepare a budget, how to you know re report on variances and so forth. Some of the basic business skills that they just don't teach in nursing school, but these are department leaders who now have to do that. So this patient care administrator, his name was Fenn Dickinson, had the vision of saying, well, here's a guy who knows business, who's interested in operations, who can help maybe mentor these folks. And so that was part of my role. I got to work with six different nursing department leaders, all those wow. clinical departments, and part of my job was to help you know, teach them business and financial acumen, you know, some basic healthcare administration stuff because I'm just coming out of school. So it was great exercise for me. It also exposed me to working with them, the, you know, clinical service line department management. Um, so that was my first how is that different? Direct. It, well, it, you're dealing with different things. Of course, the clinicians themselves. Mm -hmm. um, many of these are, you know, specialties or certification requires and so forth. So all the rules and regs that go along with that. The individual personalities. That was my first uh, exposure to managing providers, physicians. Okay. Um, I had a neurology group, and so that was, uh, you know, those were new for me, and I had been responsible for projects and support departments up to that point, but never profit and loss departments. That was new too. Okay, you've got revenue to report as well as now the expense management, and it was really about margin management. So there was a lot of uh, so now new you're not just asking make. for money; you're having to generate, produce, and, yeah, and, produce and the money yeah. and, and uh, become self-sustaining or better, you know, right. ideally, preferably. Um, and then, so that was a great exposure there. I mean, that's of course I needed that background. But I think the biggest thing I took away from that was how. Uh, value, how much value I got intrinsically out of helping others learn this stuff. You know, it was great when I could see this, you know, seasoned nurse leader who had been a, an amazing clinician all her life and now was dealing with the nursing staff and LNAs or, or CNAs and so forth wonderfully, but really didn't understand some of the basic business acumen and to watch her just get it, you know, and, and thrive from there was it was really cool. I was proud of these people who were sometimes 20 years my senior learning from me and, and me helping co to contribute into their advancement in their own career and, and thus the, the department and the, the organization. That was really cool. I, I really, that's why I kept getting up in the morning, you know, it was a tough job then too, but I was in my 20s yeah. and, you know, working with these major departments in a tertiary care medical center. I mean, EMMC is a 426 bed medical center yeah. and uh, a lot of responsibility. So I never- Especially for someone so young. Yeah, it, it did teach me a lot of humility. I mean, I, I was humble being given that much responsibility, and but I got a lot of f good feedback from the nurses. They were gracious. They were gra uh, grateful as well. And many of them said, "You know, I didn't, nobody ever taught me this." So um, it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. There's often conflict between administration, nursing, and then you know medical staff, physicians. Mm -hmm. So how did you how did you run into that, and how did you? overcome that. Mm -hmm. That's a good uh, good observation. Many times it's folks thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm clinical. I'm not clerical, you know, and right. so the administration piece is just don't bother me with that stuff. Let me take care of the patients. Absolutely. I agree. I respect that. And frankly, I know I can't. I can't do that. So great. Let me do everything I possibly can to enable you to do that effectively. Um, however, the reality is as well, 
we do need to take care of some of those things or we can't keep taking care of patients. You know, we need to keep the doors open. We need to keep investing in technology or resources or people or whatever it is to keep being able to deliver the mission. So some of the stuff is a necessary evil, if you will. But the way I bridge that gap, honestly, is just by listening and, and, and having conversations about, okay, what is it that you don't understand or what are you resisting? Where's the, the, the rub here? And so through conversations with folks, got them to understand maybe my perspective, I learned their perspective, and we came to a place where we could you know, come together with a, uh, either a path forward or a solution, idea, whatever, that served us both. And frankly, I, I didn't categorize it as clerical, clinical, administrative, or you know, clinical function. It was just, we're running the department. Right. How can we best do that for the patients? And so that's really how I kind of led in with what I, now I'd log in differently with different audiences, you know, speak to nursing leadership or nurses differently than you do to medical staff and so forth, CFOs. I mean, you, you just got to understand your audience. So I'd adapt the message a little bit, but most of the time I've, well, not most of the time, all of the time I've found if you keep the patient at the center, it's hard to argue. You just change the context around a little bit or content around. Context is always patient first. You're going to be good. So you, you did that role for about two years, yep. and then you went back to uh, corporate, e to corporate, back mm -hmm. to Eastern Maine Health Care, or, or uh, at that time it was EMHS. Okay, yeah, and it, it, it yeah. involved EMHS yeah. to be the director of e business. So back into the IT yep. IM kind of role. What was e business? Good question. It's a little misleading too, because yes, it had IT IM components, yeah. but it was kind of a marriage between that and actually at the time there was this. Uh, kind of fledgling possibility for healthcare, which honestly is still evolving today with this idea of personal health records and actually moving the EMR out into patients' hands. So e-health was just starting. So e-business was really meant to kind of bridge the gap between IS, finance, marketing, and the actual clinical, you know, the record. Yeah, HIM, if you will, or co um, uh, the EMR mm -hmm. with, again, the patient in the center. So I had enough experience in all of those areas at the time that the um, uh, VP of uh, Business Development Marketing for, for the system approached me and said, hey, look, we've got this wild idea. We want to get into e-health. Um, would you lead it? And so there was no e-business department. There was no e-health department again. I always liked the uh, the idea of if you can write your own job description, go for it. You know, yeah. so okay. So I said it was just one of those opportunities I couldn't pass up. I also missed to a degree working with the multiple business units, multiple okay. organizations. That's another reason I was attracted back to corporate. Okay. Was okay, EMMC had a culture, everybody else had a different culture and so forth, and I really liked bridging between them and seeing the values and you know grabbing the great ideas from one or another. It was, it was a little homogeneous for me at EMMC. I really liked you know, working with a multiple organization. So it was an opportunity to do both. Yeah. So I did. And uh, we actually became the first integrated health delivery network in the country to roll out an e-health product, a personal health record, um, back in 2003, I want to say. Winona, Minnesota had gone first, but they were... Um, just a single entity. We rolled it out for multiple hospitals across the system, uh, first in the country. Um, so what can you do with that as a, as a 
as a patient, as a, well, as a member? Well, that was the first patient messaging system, you know, secure okay. patient messaging between them and their providers, scheduling appointments, asking for refills, the first, you know, place to keep track of all your immunizations, allergies, and so forth. Uh, but it was probably an idea about 10 years ahead of its time. Um, and actually, uh, we talked a little bit about that. I was At the time, I was serving as the, the national um, pre user president of IQ Health, which was Cerner's uh, e-health product. And we talked about this, you know, this is pretty progressive and not a lot of people are adopting it. And how do you get the physicians bought in? That this is just one more distraction for them. And despite the fact that you could save enough money in stamps to pay for the system, um, it, was, uh, it was difficult to get adoption. I, at the time, we actually never made our target of 5,000 registrants. So ultimately, it folded. We, we okay. under-resourced it, in my opinion, but it was yeah. also a little bit ahead of its time. Okay. PHRs now are yeah. coming back, you know, and someday Google's going to solve that all for us, <laughs> and we'll have just everybody will have right. their their eye record or whatever it is. Um, but we were literally back then talking nice. about eye prescriptions. You know, in, uh, here's an information prescription. Read these two articles and call me in the morning, kind of thing. Okay. Um, but it, it was too early. Too so, early. Um, but. At the same time, I was developing out the e-business department, so the structure for managing these projects on, on the IT side and working between IT and finance to get them budgeted and paid for. It was really about building infrastructure at the parent level um, that's still in shape today. I mean, that was a, the advent of the first project management office for uh, IT, uh, started from the e-business department. Okay. Um, so it was, a, it was still a very worthwhile several yeah. years. So you moved, uh, you added some additional responsibilities in 2003, became the corporate director for information systems. Correct. Um, how did that change? What, what, did, what accreted to your roles at that point? Okay, well, that actually came about because uh, at that time, the CIO, who I was working for, again, Matrix, between um, the CIO at the system and the, the VP of marketing and business development at the system, says, we have another project. He was the same guy that Dev Culver, he's, he's still in Maine at uh, Health InfoNet, um, said, we, we've got another project. It's pretty major. It's going to make Y2K look like a cakewalk. You've, are you in? I said, of course, Dev. I'm, I'm, you know, I can't turn away from a challenge like that. Um, we had, at the time had seven tertiary hospitals or acute care hospitals on, I think it was five or six different clinical information systems, business systems. And said, so we want to convert them all to one single platform. It was called the Together Project. And we did. So I was the project director for that project that brought all those hospitals to the same platform within two years. Wow. Uh, pretty significant yeah. rollout, huge budget, a um, lot of work uh, that got done. Um, and uh, it was a great team effort to do that. Uh, but that's kind of where that you know, uh, evolved from. They just gave me the title of corporate director. After the Together Project, it continued in, okay, now we've got you know, single standard structure, so we needed leadership at the corporate to help kind of facilitate the rollout of managing these systems uh, ongoing. So all of the local IT directors then reported up through me to the parent. And so that, that's how we started managing the economies of scale and figuring out how to prioritize projects across the system and so forth. So again, it was a project-driven development of infrastructure as the system continued to evolve and grow. So in 2006, you left Eastern Maine Health System. 
to go to a, yet another affiliate, yep. Sebastocook Valley Hospital in Pittsfield, Maine, right. where you spent the next nine years um, in a series of positions culminating with being the chief operating officer. Correct. Where's Pittsfield, Maine, and, and what role does Sebastocook play in the community there? Okay, well, Pittsfield is about 30 miles west on I-95 corridor from Bangor. Okay. So just uh, the, the next closest small hospital to the corporate parent headquarters and Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor. Uh, SVH is a critical access hospital, 25-bed hospital, uh-huh. so it fills a very crucial need for the community where it's a small community, and SVH is like many communities where uh, the critical access hospitals are, the largest employer in town, and it was actually created by few families in Pittsfield back in the 60s who needed a place to have their women have their babies. And so families got together. There, many of the families are still in town, very supportive of the community, uh, excuse me, of the hospital. And um, so it was a great environment to be going into first, first uh, foray into the senior executive level into a very supported hospital by the community. It was yeah. not going into a broken ship or anything like that. Trying it was, to it turn was it around. Perma- yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was under great leadership at the time. Actually, yeah. one of my mentors was the CEO okay. at the time, and he uh, had an opportunity for me. We were at a ACHE conference, actually, and he says, I got an idea for you. We're getting big enough that my, at, at the time, chief operating officer, her scope and scale was getting a little too large for what they really wanted to do. So. The, the position I moved into at that time, VP of Clinical Services, was brand new. Okay. Again, one of those chances, write your own job description. Yeah. So basically, I picked up all of the outpatient ancillary and diagnostic service departments, and she kept all nursing and, and the other departments. And between the two of us, picked up you know the the um, operational role at the hospital. So. It was a but big guess, scope, maybe yep. not necessarily, I'm not sure if it was more people necessarily than you had managed before, but it was a broader scope yes. than what you had had. and it was back to clinical. I mean, okay. that's the right. thing, and that's the point I want to make here is, I, as corporate director of IT, and I was one of three or four corporate directors because we had a little different roles, but the same title, um, I was kind of on a CIO track, and I had to make a decision. And actually, the CIO at the time, we had a conversation. I'd won an award from John Glazier Scholarships and so forth, became nominated for Ones to Watch in CIO Magazine and so forth, 2005. And it was like shaping up, okay, am I going to be a CIO or am I going to be a CEO? Right. And so I kind of had to make a decision at that time. And I said, you know what? I feel like I'm getting a little bit too far, a little too disconnected from the patient care. I, I've lost a little of the fire in my belly, if you will. I need to get closer. I need to get back to our clinical operations. So that's why I was intrigued about going yeah, to a member hospital and getting uh-huh. back into clinical operations so I could get back on, in my opinion, the CEO role. Okay. At the time, they were talking, oh, yeah, a lot of CIOs are becoming CEOs. Mm, didn't pan out that way. It still hasn't. Yeah. Um, they're a critical aspect of you know, running an organization, and they should be um, you know, one of the uh, most depended upon advisors to a senior executive, absolutely but they're not becoming CEOs, and that's ultimately, again, what I wanted to do since I was It's 13, a very specialized 14. skill set, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
So I took the opportunity when uh, Jack May, at the time was the CEO at SVH, says, you know, here's, here's this new role we think we, you could uh, be successful in. So I, I took, the, took the shot. Yeah. I was very pleased. It, it felt great. I, you know, I, I was happy doing, getting that much closer to the actual patient care delivery. Again, I could never stand the guts and gore myself, but hey, uh, being able to provide the phlebotomist the, the resources they need to draw the blood well or provide the surgeon the tools they need to do that laparoscopic procedure, I mean, that's what I could do. As I felt like back in college, you know, facilitating problems and solutions, so. What, what does it, so you have all these different operations. Obviously, mm -hmm. obviously you can't become an expert in each of them. Correct. Which would kind of be ideal. Correct. You know, to lead, but obviously that's just not possible. Right. So how did that affect your leadership style? What did you have to learn to do? Well, what I learned to do is execute the old adage of, I think it was Confucius actually, and I apologize for the cliche here, but the wiser man has more questions than answers. I learned how to ask the right questions. I learned how to ask the right people, okay, tell me enough so that I can be helpful and, and, and draw out of the experts, you know, what it is they needed, what their ideas were, what their recommendations, let's think through the impact, let's think about an exit strategy, let's think about all the uh, possible options and then together make the best decisions. That's facilitation of, of a solution, not de determination of a solution. Okay. And that's what I really learned to do well. I had to do that though in IT long before because I wasn't an IT geek. I was not a guru of you know coding, but I knew enough to know how to ask the right questions of the people who did know the detail right. so that we got the best answers. And from a leadership perspective, what that taught me was the far more valuable or um, beneficial way in terms of truly meeting full potential is collaborative decision-making versus directorial or, or uh, you know, top-down decision-making. Let me, let me ask you to extend that a little bit. Sure. Because most of the time, the people working for you are great. But sometimes you've, you've got a problem in there in, and without being an expert in the area. Mm -hmm. How would you detect it? That's why metrics are important. Okay. You know, predetermined, okay, what are we gonna, how are we gonna measure success? What's the pace we should be hitting the run rate for these milestones, goals, whatever it is? getting agreement up front by, and, and then vetting them with other experts. You know, we had a system I could lean back to turn around to another VP of clinical services or ancillary support and say, what are you guys doing? I mean, how do you know when you can wave the flag of success? Well, and so you learn from other people. Okay. Work with the experts locally and say, okay, does this sound reasonable? Or if we wanted to get here, what would it take? And so let's line up the resources, put them in place, and then we should start to see this progress. I didn't need to know the detail uh, or be an expert. All I needed to know was how to keep people on track, hold them accountable, respectfully of course, but give them the tools and resources they needed to reach their potential. And then it just kind of fell out from there. Now, I've always been an inquisitive soul, so I like to ask a lot of those kinds of questions because I want to understand. And I pick that stuff up and retain it. You know, I can still tell you how long it takes to thaw out of uh, uh, frozen plasma because we ran into a problem one day in the lab and uh, asked the question, so how much time do you need? I remember. So now I remember that as I'm talking about, okay, well, if we're going to be getting our plasma from over here, 
well, we better be within 35 minutes, you know? So yeah. those are the things that it just sticks with me. But really it's about making sure you have agreement with the experts about what you're gonna be measuring and how, you know, what's reasonable, what's the aspirational goals maybe, and yeah. then just measure. It's the discipline of accountability. You were on the senior executive team. Yes. What additional responsibilities were implied by that role? Well, of course, I had to uh, staff some board committees and help out with the... Uh, at, I was uh, given the opportunity to help develop and, and manage the strategic plan, facilitation of the strategic planning for the organization for the last six or seven years. So that was in, inherently, you know, I had that responsibility. A lot of reporting to not only the uh, um, local CEO, but the parent and responsibility to system level task forces and either uh, work groups or task force design, you know, short term kind of thing, looking at something from a system level. And we did have that responsibility as member organization executives. We had a responsibility both to the local organization as well as the system. My personal philosophy with systems is strong members make a strong system and vice versa. Okay. So it's, it's a shared responsibility. One of the things you talked about in, when I reviewed your CV was that you, have, you were involved in these system-level steering committees around lean. Yes. What is lean? lean? Why is that important? Oh, well, lean is important, honestly, because uh, the nature of healthcare today, we have to continually drive down the costs. And lean is about doing that, just that, the relentless pursuit of the identification and elimination of waste in our processes. And frankly, healthcare is a target-rich environment for that. A lot of processes we do are truly non-value-added. It's either they grew up over time and, and uh, kind of grew up like a weed sometimes, you, you might hear it said, that really aren't adding a whole lot of value to the patients who would be willing to pay for it. You know, a lot. maybe there's some business value-added steps, of course, registering a patient, billing, and so forth. We've got to do that to run the business. But a vast majority of our processes are made up of some of those eight deadly wastes that Lean teaches in a lot of inventory. We actually have rooms dedicated to waste. They're called waiting rooms. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's a kind of a unique take on transfer of manufacturing techniques and tools actually originated in Japan after mm -hmm. World War II, Toyota production system, and actually it was an American who went to Japan and introduced it to them, ironically enough, because nobody in America wanted to hear it after World War II. But it it's, uh, was slow to be adopted in the healthcare industry, and it's only in the last dozen years or so that it's really become kind of the, the ingrained way of doing things because we just need to drive cost out of the system. You know, the, the pressure from the payers and, and, you know, the CMS and so forth, it's not going to change or stop. We have to get better at uh, driving cost out without sacrificing quality. And that's really about the principles of lean. Quality is non-negotiable, uh, but we can improve processes to work smarter, not harder, as you've heard. Right. And lean is just a set of tools and techniques to do just that. But lean culture is different as well. It, lean tools are everywhere, and some of them are intuitive. Um, some of them are literally a foreign language, so you, you've got to be uh, aware of them and, and learn some of that discipline. But it's as much about having a lean philosophy in terms of being willing to let go of control sometimes from leadership and say, you know what, the people who can solve these problems best for us are the people who work the process or the system every day. It's the staff. 
line staff. So we have to be comfortable and willing at the executive level to let go and admit we don't have all the answers, but let's engage the staff and you can actually turn uh, a group of employees into an army of people looking for problems to solve. And when that happens and you empower them to solve them, man, you can move mountains. So it's, it's exciting work to me because I love to see the progress, but I also love to see the staff get engaged and empowered to solve their own problems. And frankly, by doing that, we have a much better chance of solving them to the best of our ability than just applying a solution we think will be best, but we don't know the whole story. Or worse, somebody says, ah, that's great. Um, they don't know what they're talking about up there. We'll pretend we're gonna do this and let's go back and do it our well. Or necessities of other invention, they end up band-aiding or putting a workaround in place. So, you know, line staff and healthcare are the masters of workarounds. I mean, it's, it's necessary because they have to take care of the patients. Um, so it's, it's really about harnessing that energy applying some tools and then supporting that culture to allow those tools to take root and really sustain improvement. So it's exciting to see more and more healthcare organizations adopting lean and uh, moving forward with that because it really can make transformational difference. Is this something you've retained and oh, yeah, absolutely. To use? We're using lean here. I mean, I'm, I'm, one of the reasons I honestly, I think I got this job was because of my experience in lean. They were interested in doing that for all these same reasons. Okay. Um, but it's a discipline and some of it's intuitive and as I said, some of it is literally a foreign language. We have to have to be trained to do it and have the discipline and then support it from the very top. Yeah. Um, otherwise it's just another, you know, program du jour. Um, but we can thank some, you know, innovators like Swedish Medical and, and Virginia Mason and so forth who've kind of paved the way for healthcare to say lean can work in healthcare. You were named chief operating officer in two thousand thirteen. Correct. What did that change in title? represent for you in terms of the leadership structure at, at um, Sebastocook, Sebastocook yeah. Valley Hospital and, and your role? Well, at that time, um, the COO of the, at that time became the CEO, and I was the CAO, which was relatively unique in New England. I mean, there weren't that many CAOs, Chief Administrative Officers. So um, before she became the CEO, we had a CAO and a COO. And again, for a small hospital, it's a little unique, but it was just titles. We both had operational responsibilities. When she became the CEO, I basically uh, adopted some of the responsibilities she had, became a leader within a dyad model working with the CMO at the time, the medical staff office, and picked up the responsibilities for the specialty surgeon practices and so forth, hospitalist and ED docs and so so on. So basically I retained all my CAO responsibilities plus that okay. became COO and we didn't backfill the C COO other okay. than with me. Okay. So um, it was just an expansion of role and responsibilities. Okay. Well, so after nine years at Sebastocook and almost 19 years with Eastern Maine Health System, you Actually, left me. 28 if you go all the way back to oh, you go, okay. 1988. So, so okay, let so, me back that up. Or 29 so, so 28, now. 29, oh, yeah, because yeah, you started yeah, just, uh, in high school. 88. Right, right. so 88. Um, well, right after high school. Yep. So, um, okay, so after nine years at Sebastocook and 28 years, 
uh, depending on how you count it, yeah. uh, with Eastern Maine Health System. You left Maine and you came to, to Berlin, New Hampshire to be the president of Androscoggin Valley Hospital. So before we talk about your current role, can you tell us a little bit about Androscoggin Valley Hospital and about Berlin, New Hampshire? Sure, absolutely. Well, Berlin is a, an interesting town. And of course, it's a, it was a mill town up until very recently. It was the um, uh, second largest city in, in New Hampshire. I mean, it was really behind only Manchester. Okay. Yep. That wow. was a, but when the mill closed and didn't come back, I mean, there was a, an exodus of people, honestly, because of the jobs. So it's, I believe, on its way back up. It kind of hit rock bottom, it's kind of plateaued, and now it's starting to, the economy is starting to come back. But it is your pretty typical small New England community. I mean, the values here are very similar to the values I've found and seen in small communities across northern New England. And honestly, that was one of the main attractants for me because I did spend a little time in southern Florida um, while my wife was in grad school. And uh, it taught me fairly clearly that nice place to visit, but I really fit in northern New England. Okay. It was really about the values, the sense of community, the sense of working together, but autonomy and independence and pride in accomplishment of things that I think is rooted in this part of the country. So Berlin's very similar to many small towns across northern New, New, New England, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont especially. It's 10,000 people roughly in town, but the greater Berlin area, if you think of Gorham and Jefferson, Randolph, and up towards Milan, Errol, as far as Errol, New Hampshire, you know, we serve about 30,000 roughly people in this, in this general vicinity. Androscoggin Valley Hospital is a 25-bed critical access hospital that actually, as you can see, is a little bigger physically than many critical access hospitals because, again, it was built here in the 70s when there was 30,000 people here in Berlin alone. So it was built originally as a 94-bed hospital. Okay. Gives us some definite advantages. I know there's some good space here that we can utilize, but we are still a critical access hospital. 20% of our book of business is inpatient, 80% roughly is outpatient services. We have a group of specialists, a lot of subspecialists you wouldn't expect to see in a small rural area, neurology, pulmonology, cardiology through collaboration with uh, uh, Catholic Medical Center, and a number of other subspecialists that, uh, again, somewhat unique to critical access in small towns. But How do you bring in all these specialists to a relatively small relatively small facility, yep. relatively small town. How do they build enough business to, to support themselves? That's a great question. Part of it is, is having enough to, to warrant the, the, the expense mm -hmm. and having the demand to warrant the capacity, if you will. So it's really about collaborating. Collaborating with, like, for example, uh, the, the the cardiologist we have here is is through a collaboration with Catholic Medical. Um, we've collaborated with other small hospitals that jointly together you have enough volume to support a full-time provider because part-time providers aren't all that frequent, or it's hard to to find them to begin with. They don't want to come work part-time. Many, if you're, right. you're just out of school and you're staring huge student loans in the face, do you want to work part-time? So it's really about having that critical mass. So collaboration is the name of the game for those things. And you have to, I mean, if we're working with Dartmouth, you know, for example, to help with our radiology program or lab, working with other small hospitals, you gotta get to that tipping point, that critical mass. So collaboration is really how to do that. Okay. And you have Valley Birthplace and Women's 
Services is, mm -hmm. is one of your major product lines. I yes, think. yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's our women's services line, OB and delivery. And it is now only one of two places in the North Country, Northern New Hampshire, where women can have their babies. Incredibly important because, frankly, this is a huge geographic area. So we're very proud of that service. It's a, one of the leaders in the region. We do a great job. The staff up there are really compassionate folks, as are all the staff here, but especially up there, they love what they're doing, and uh, it's, it shows. So um, it's one of our, our best areas. Roughly how many FTEs are employed here? 320 employees okay, and about 51 active medical staff, a okay. little bit. We have a pretty good mix, too, of employed versus contract or independent medical staff, and it, it's worked out well. So you are a member of North Country Healthcare, the newest integrated health delivery network in New Hampshire. When did this affiliation come about, and, and what was the genesis of that? So it, it officially became a system on April 1st of this year. So it's brand spanking new still, but it was a brainchild of a couple of folks who are still now in administration of this system. Warren West and uh, Russ Keene. Russ is, was my predecessor here, was the CEO at, at ABH, and Warren was at Littleton Regional. And uh, it's actually the concept started a number of years ago, thinking about how we can better serve the population of the North Country by doing just that, working together, collaborating to find those critical mass opportunities for driving out cost and driving up quality. And that's really what any system exists for, is to do those two things. And frankly, it's, I believe, because of the realization that competition is counterproductive, especially with you know struggling economies and everybody's fighting for their piece of the pie, if you will, that isn't getting any bigger, really, at this point. So collaboration is far more productive, far more cost-effective, and it was about bringing them together with that vision of bringing four critical access hospitals to the table to help leverage economies of scale and share best practices across the North Country. How did the system convince regulators that allowing those four critical access hospitals that are basically the sole providers in, in this area to, to together. work together, come together, yeah. and, and not say, well, that's anti-competitive and we can't allow yeah. that. I actually had to defer to Russ okay. uh, and Warren okay. a little bit on that, but from my understanding, it wasn't easy. Yeah. Um, we actually had to make agreements that, for a period of time anyway, the system would not require the exit of any service line from any one of those given communities. So we had to make commitments to the AG and said, we are not intending to remove or take away any any service line from any of these communities. The, the intent is truly to grow and enhance our ability to deliver specialty services okay. close to home. But again, there's that angst and so forth because I think everybody sees the writing on the wall. Duplication of services is not cost effective. We're about driving out costs. So does that mean we're going to have to travel across the valley or up to Colebrook or, or vice versa in order to get access to the services we need? Well, that's not the intent. But everybody kind of sees, okay, regionalization of service lines kind of makes sense intuitively. How are we going to make sure that we can continue to deliver the local missions without jeopardizing, you know, or, or becoming too overburdened in terms of cost. So that was one thing I know we had to do with the AG before we got the blessing yeah. to move forward was to make a commitment that we're going to study 
the opportunities and study the right models and so forth in northern New Hampshire, but we will not remove specific service lines for a specific set of time. And uh, so that was, I think, what got us over the hump. We got the blessing and moved forward. That's just really interesting. I mean, there, typically when I think of a uh, system, I think of something like Eastern Maine, where you've got an Eastern Maine Medical Center, big hospitals right. an anchor, and then small hospitals right. kind of orbiting around it, whereas right. this is kind of a merger of equals. It was is very unique. I mean, honestly, that was one of the things that attracted me to this, to this role. I mean, I, I'm not a guy that moves around a lot. I mean, I may have moved around in my career, but it was always within the same system. I actually have lived in the Bangor area for the last 21 years. So I, to uproot my family and move to New Hampshire was a pretty risky undertaking for me. I needed to feel very comfortable with it. One of the attractants was this new system. This was a system, as you said, of equals for critical access hospitals coming together to try and achieve something. There is no 800-pound gorilla here. Right. You know, it's not somebody saying, okay, you will practice the way we do it because it's the way we do it. It's, it's an opportunity for the four hospitals to come together and say, okay, we're all critical access hospitals, so we're automatically we're all speaking the same language. I mean, there really is a difference between critical access and PPS or the, the prospective payment hospitals. Um, and sometimes things get lost in translation. Well, why do you do it that way? Well, we've got a cost report we need to worry about, so that's why we kind of look at things a little differently. That, that uh, lack of awareness or understanding wasn't even an issue. We'd all been living it. The other attractive part, I'll, I'll be honest with you, is um, I'm the first of the new presidents. So right out of the gate, um, I'm going to have tenure, if you will, over the new presidents who are now being hired. When we come together to solve problems as a system, there's no baggage. You know, I, I will have not will not have had worked with these folks in the past as competitors and you know be carrying this memory from years ago well yeah you kind of slighted <laughs> me on that deal two years ago right. so I'm gonna no we're starting from scratch so all that learning curve if you will is, is a non-issue we will get to collaborate and work from this point forward which is a great and it's a real advantage I think but just knowing that there isn't a you know a hundred pound gorilla kind of out there, even if it's not, because I know I've, I've worked at those and I've been at the system and watched it. That's not the intent. That's not where people's, you know, there's no malicious effort to do that. But the perception, however, is, oh, well, they're so arrogant. They're just imposing their means of practice on me. And if I wanted to go work in, in practice in like they do in Burlington or Lebanon or, uh, you know, Bangor or wherever, Boston, then I would have moved there. You know, let me practice wait. No, it's really about best practices, sharing the best practice. And those can come from anywhere, yeah. including four small hospitals. Yeah. So it was, a, it was really uh, somewhat unique in the country, I believe, of four similar sized hospitals coming together like this. Yeah, yeah I was wondering if it, if, if it is maybe the only one, or I don't know. If it, I, I don't yeah, know. Well, okay. I, it's just, it's I certainly the I've only one in New Hampshire, it's the only one I've ever seen yeah. a, a system. Usually they, they evolve the way you've described, a yeah. large tertiary center kind of being the, the, the hub of a hub and spoke model, and you know, it all kind of feeds to that. This is four hospitals coming together to um, better serve the population of the area we cover. So I wanted to ask about governance. Yes. So uh, now that, that Androscoggin is a member of the North Country uh, system, mm -hmm. um, traditionally the president reports to a local board. Mm -hmm. What is your reporting yep. structure? So I have back into matrix reporting. 
I do. I am responsible f to the local board. So I have a board chair and a board um, committees and the full board as, as traditional uh, structured. But there's also a parent board that the local board actually um, reports up to in terms of ratifying our strategic plan and our budget. Um, so that's pretty traditional with system board governance structure as well. But personally, I also report directly to the system CEO which is Warren West. Um, so I've got my boss, quote unquote, the board and at AVH and my boss, Warren West, the system CEO. And so it's really making sure that all the things we're doing are in line with the best interests of both the member organization and the parent, the, the system, uh, as much as possible. Now, sometimes there will be conflict in those things, so we have to work those through. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I do have a, a dual reporting line, if you will. How does someone come to be on the AVH board? Well, they are nominated by a, a nominating committee made up of the current board members based on need. We're actually going through a governance optimization project right now, as, as it were, identifying a matrix of skill sets, representation, geographic representation, and so forth of the makeup of our current board. And we identify members of the community who have the capacity interest in doing so, reach out to them, vet them through the nominating committee, they get ratified by our local board first, new board members, that is, also have to be ordained, if you will, by the, the parent board okay. um, to sit on the local board. So, you, so you're looking for geographic representation, yes. so you want somebody from Gorham and somebody from Berlin and as wide as we can uh, right? for our primary and sometimes our secondary service area. Yes. What else are you looking for aside from geographic? Well, it depends on really, honestly, in an ideal setting, you'd want a good cross-section of skills or, or interests based on what the hospital is actually going through at the time. You know, we, we don't have board term limits right now, but we want to keep fresh ideas coming. But for example, if we were getting into a major construction project, we might want to have somebody on the board who's got con, uh, you know, construction management experience. Or if we've got a lot of things going on with contract or payer negotiations, we might want somebody you know, well-versed in the insurance aid, uh, industry, or banking, legal, you name it. But we always want to have representation of the community as wide and broad a demographic representation as we can get. Clinical, business, financial, financial, legal, and so forth. But again, it's got to be a, a good cross-section of who they represent as our community. Do some of your providers sit on your board? Yes, we always have providers. Uh, the president of the medical staff, by bylaw, is, is sits on the board, as well as we have a, a board member at large who is a physician. We're, we currently don't have nursing on the board, but we're working on that as well because it's always a good idea to have that clinical representation right at the board level. How many board members do you have typically? It well, probably fluctuates a little bit. It does from time to time. We'll get a variation based on you know departures and so forth. But bylaws allow for anything. Get it right here. We've got new bylaws. Uh, I think 18 is the maximum. I think a 12 is the minimum. But honestly, you want a good enough number so that we can do a lot of work from committee through committees. And so we don't want to overburden these. This is a volunteer position. These are people with day jobs. So we want to be uh, sensitive to that. But right now we have 16 board members and we're considering whether or not we're going to backfill the other two vacant positions to get to 18. Sometimes a smaller board is a little more 
nimble and efficient, but it's also, again, we want to spread the wealth and, and figure out do we have all of the areas of interest represented. So we're going through that process right now with our own governance committee, evaluating, you know, are we going to keep it at 16 or drop it to 14 or through attrition or nominate and grow some more folks. What's the work of the board? What do they actually do? They are responsible ultimately for the quality of the care that we deliver. So that means they are responsible for making sure that the providers that we privilege and credential here will meet the needs of the community at the quality that the community expects. Ultimately, that is their job. They also have a responsibility to hire the chief executive and execute the policies to achieve the vision of the organization. In a nutshell, that's it. So they have entrusted me and my team to the responsibility of managing this community asset. And that's effectively, I work for them, nobody else in this building does, but they have empowered me to put into place organizational structure and policies and procedures and so forth to execute the vision of the organization, which is a collaborative definition with administration and the board. Where does strategic planning happen yep. in this organization? Board level. Board level. Uh, absolutely. Okay. This is something that, you know, strategic planning will now also take place at system level as well because strategic plan at a member organization has to support a system vision and strategic plan. This is a unique time for us. The system is so new. There is no system strategic plan, so we really don't have a current strategic plan for AVH. We have a working plan. We have a tactical plan just to stay on budget. We do have those things that we're trying to achieve for growth and service and quality and so forth. So that's an operational plan. A long-range strategic plan we'll get into next year. We do actually have a three-year a three -year working plan at the system that we're getting into strategic planning now. But in other systems I've worked in and member organizations and so forth, best strategic planning happens at the board level, but it happens with engagement by the medical staff, the community, including the patients we serve, the departmental leadership, and the line staff working administration, just facilitating all of that, calling out, okay, where do we want to go? How do we best cost-effectively get there? How do we grow the quality? What's our standard going to be? And how do we keep pushing that standard higher? And that kind of fleshes out the strategic plan. I see myself as the facilitator, not the definition of that strategic plan. So you report to the board yes. as well as the CEO of the system. Yes. How do they evaluate you? What are they looking at? Well, very clear Mike, goals. Mike, you did a good job. These yeah. are the things you did well. Yeah. I actually uh, just yesterday reported the six-month update status on the hospital goals to the, uh, the board committee that's looking at that. Um, there are 45 items that said this supports our work plan. This takes us to where we want to be to get ready for the long-term strategic plan. If we had a strategic plan, it would be the items on the operational plan that support the strategy. So it's very clear, very objective as well. How are we doing with the margin, service, quality metrics, people, you know, turnover, retention, recruitment, blah, 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 engagement results and so forth. How are we doing in the community? Are we giving back? Are we supportive of volunteerism and so forth? There's very clear defined metrics. There have to be because my departments have clear tactics and goals that they will feed up to the hospital goals. So I measure based on the hospital's performance, based on those metrics. That's the objective part. Subjectively, it's about how are we doing building and nurturing relationships. And honestly, I believe that 
these roles are all about relationships. You know, uh, nobody gets anything done on their own. We need each other and other people to get these things done. It's, it's impossible to achieve full potential doing things by yourself. So this is really about relationship management. So the subjective part of my evaluation is really, how are you doing? Have you built relationships with key community members, city management, key providers, the, the regulators, uh, legislators, you name it. That's, that's how I'm evaluated. What are the major challenges of running a hospital in the North Country? <laughs> well, um, recruitment and retention of high quality professionals who want to live in the North Country. And that's always a challenge, and that's not unique to the North Country. I think it's unique to rural, or uh, similar, common, sorry, to rural America. There is an assumption that you can't get good help up here. This is the, you know, set the B team, if you will. I, I have not found that to be true. You just have to make sure that you find the best fit. There are great providers, great staff who want to live in a rural community that and take advantage of all that these communities have to offer. You just gotta take your time to find them and then retain them. Sometimes it, it takes a little bit because you know we don't have all the amenities necessarily you'd find downtown Boston or something like that, but there are different amenities. Right. So it's really about making sure we tweak the package that we're offering to find the right candidate and spend the time doing it once as opposed to making promises, having disconnection, and then having this revolving door of in and out. That's just timely, it's cost. Uh, costly and so forth and defeats morale too. That's number one. Number two is we don't have necessarily all the access to services that we would like to have and sometimes need because of that. There are other agencies that are struggling with that same thing. Behavioral health, substance abuse issues, again pretty common to most cities, towns in rural America. We're struggled with them here in the North Country as well. On top of that, though, we also have the issue of transportation. I mean, there's, there's, this is a very large geographic place. The, the spots for points of care are quite a distance in some, in many cases, and there are a lot of people who just can't get from point A to point B. We don't have mass transit. We don't have the opportunities for bus lines and so forth. So that becomes a pretty big issue for us. Beyond that, it's just you know managing the the razor thin margins that any small hospital is you know, up against on a regular basis anyway. Well, so speaking of razor-thin margins, mm -hmm. most community hospitals have 50% or more of their revenues coming from government sources, yes. such as Medicare and Medicaid. Yes. What's the pair mix at, at ADH? We're about the same. I mean, it's closer to 60 plus percent of Medicare, Medicaid, self-pay makes up a small portion. We have seen, it's, it's gotten better, honestly, with the ACA, the exchange products since 2014-15. We have seen a decrease in our bad debt, and that's great. So the exchange products have actually done what I think they intended to do, is reduce the, the burden of bad debt. Um, commercial payers are about similar to a lot of small hospitals in rural New England. Um, but yeah, we're you know very dependent on the Medicare and Medicaid payer systems. How does the payer mix affect your strategy? Uh, well, we have to make sure that we're maximizing our critical access hospital status, which means we've got to think about that cost report and allowable costs all the time. We have to think about serving the, the state and the federal government in terms of meeting their requirements and needs. We take part in as many of the projects and so forth that we possibly can to maximize the return there, to leverage the opportunities that they both have in place. 
demonstration projects like ACOs and so forth. I mean, we want to take part in that. And we have those payer mix because that's our population. So we wouldn't be serving our mission if we didn't take advantage of those things and actually deliver for those payers. So it changes our strategy somewhat because we have to be mindful of the fact that we are cost-based and sometimes they don't reimburse as well as, you know, the commercial insurances. So we have to, again, it forces us to be cost conscious while maintaining the high standards of quality that CMS requires. So we have to do better with less money, and that's just pure and simple. What would you say are the skills, competences, and abilities necessary to become the president of an organization like Androscog and Valley Hospital? I think first and foremost is relationship management. You know, just being able to work with multiple audiences, multiple people, clinicians, providers, uh, layperson, you know, board members, the community, technical staff, you name it. Um, it's really about facilitation of all these parties and their expertise for the good of a common goal. Um, I think being inspirational, so having fairly decent communication skills to uh, get people to actually follow your vision uh, is pretty important. Um, but primarily it is about uh, relationship management, I believe. You've got to know what you're talking about at least as well. So there's some level of aptitude and intelligence <laughs> yeah. that's required. And I pride myself on having a great memory. I can remember yeah, a lot of things, numbers and, and plans and so forth. You've got to be able to quickly call upon experiences and apply them. I think there's a, a definite advantage in dealing with abstracts and what I kind of call spherical thinking. It's about interrelationships between, okay, well, we're talking about this over here, but remember last week we were talking about this over here, and maybe if we do this instead of just this, we can do both. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really about the interconnectivity of problem solutions, ideas, concepts, and so forth. That's what I, I find very you know, Something uh, you mentioned helpful. you had kind of been fascinated Love by it. all the way back to yeah. your training. A synergistic yeah. approach to looking at, at uh, solutions. Yeah. Okay. How did your experiences as the chief operating officer at Sebastocook Valley Hospital prepare you for this role? Very much so. The CEO, actually all of my CEOs at Sebastocook, I had three different CEOs there, were very much, uh, very supportive leaders in terms of my own career development enhancement. So they gave me a lot of opportunity to help staff or support their functions as CEO. So I was exposed to staffing a board committee, uh, supporting the development of our final reports and so forth. And so it really prepared me for the, the, the concept and the role of the chief executive beyond just you know the day-to-day -day operations. However, the importance of understanding the day-to-day -day operations of running a hospital is critical, I believe, in, in order to actually lead it from the chief executive level, you've you got to understand what's going on and with the impact potential of any decision or strategy or direction that you might take the organization in will have on the day-to-day -day operations because that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we actually take care of patients and actually do the, you know, the billing and keep the, the revenue cycle flowing. Um, so it was critical to understand the inner workings before I could uh, theoretically effectively lead an organization through any kind of uh, transformation. You had you had several years of experience, as you were saying, on, in the senior executive roles. Mm -hmm. You are now the president of a hospital, and you've been in that role for about eight months now? Eight months, yes. 
What's and it seems like about 10 minutes, so I think that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what surprised you most about actually taking on the role? This was the hardest question I saw there. What surprised me the most? I think knowing, I, I've always had that sense of humility, the, the sense of, okay, this is such an important responsibility. And many times, consciously on the drive-in to work, I will say, you know, please, Lord, help me make the best decisions today because there are 320 families depending on what we do, and, you know, in terms of a financial, just being good financial stewards of this organization means supporting all these families of the people who work here. So that's, you know, humbling. And I walk in uh, not only proud to have that responsibility, but humbled by it as well. So what has surprised me most, I guess, is the the sheer you know, immensity of that responsibility when the buck stops here. You know, ultimately I do have the board and I leverage the board to my advantage, honestly, to say, you know, it's never just me making a decision. I leverage my team. They're amazing people. They're incredibly talented and intelligent. And together we make the best decisions. So I know I have the support. And I believe when I take something to the board or Warren, yeah, this has been vetted. This is the best idea we can come up with based on this talent pool and a brain trust we have, it's probably gonna work. So I'm comfortable there, but what's surprising is the responsibility, the accountability is still mine. At the end of the day, I need to be able to stand up, and I have on occasions already, that I own it. Regardless of where it happened, when it happened, it's my responsibility. Even if I didn't make the decision, I'm responsible for it. That's incredibly uh, humbling, even more so than I thought. Before, when I was helping facilitate a decision as COO, advising the CEO or saying, I think we ought to do this, and here's what could happen, might happen, did happen, or whatever, still was their responsibility. Now it's mine. On the upside, again, I do have all kinds of resources I bounce ideas on. Warren is a a very collaborative leader as well, and and I've contacted him and said, hey, let me bounce this off you. What would you do? And I still have my father, honestly who's now retired, but he was a CEO over 27 years. I mean, so I regularly still call him and go, hey, what do you think about this? Now, I may not always take everybody's advice, but at least I have those opportunities to use people as a sounding board and get some perspective. I'm a life learner. I, I, I think, again, if I ever assume that I know all the answers, it's time to stop. You know, there's there's always something new. Never a dull moment, never the same day twice again. It's, it's, I'm learning every day. So that was, I think, was the most surprising is how important it really is to yeah. be willing to stand up and say, okay, it's on me. As the president, mm-hmm. what keeps you up at night? So you're laying in bed and you're staring at the ceiling. What do you well, think about? If it's not usually, okay, where's the margin this month or how am I going <laughs> to take care of that? You know, it's really about making sure that we're doing the best by in, in the eyes of the community, the patients. Have we made a decision? And it varies, you know, from night to night. Many nights, I'll, I'll be honest with you, uh, I sleep pretty well. I mean, we're doing <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> um, but usually, it, you know, and I thought about this as well, the, the theme here is really was there something we could have done differently or better in the eyes of the patient? Even a, a good decision, a good outcome, what could we have done better? You know, that's what keeps me up at night. We need to have a strong financial position. 
Sometimes there are tight months and so forth. I'm glad to say right now we've been doing well. As far as I'm concerned, I'll do everything in my power to make sure we keep doing well and running in the black. That helps. So it's really about how can we make sure that we deliver the highest quality that these patients deserve. Let's transition talk a sure. little bit about leadership. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? I consider myself a servant leader. Okay. I mean, I'm here to you know, support the people who take care of the patients, run the business, do the billing, you name it, run the processes that we put in place. You know, take your traditional org chart, you know, the diagram, the, the pyramid, and flip it on its head. And that's, that's, we're here to support the people at the front lines. And I really believe that. It's my job is to do nothing more than make sure that we create and foster an environment where people can meet their true potential. What would you say are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader? And how do you aspire to those yourself? I think the ability to listen, the ability to recognize one's own limits and amalgamate great ideas from multiple resources before making a decision or taking an action and considering the impact of those actions prior to execution without being paralyzed by analysis, being willing to uh, take responsibility for the outcomes, deal with the consequences, the, the courage of your convictions, if you will, but also the willingness to make yourself vulnerable and rely, recruit first, and then rely on the talent and the expertise that you surround yourself with. Recognizing the ability, or recognizing how best to build the team. You don't want just a team of homogeneous kind of styles or approaches or whatever. Actually, one of the, my favorite leadership books was Lincoln on Leadership. Okay. And uh, President Lincoln actually populated his cabinet after he was elected president with some of his adversaries. And really, it was to force the conversation about different perspectives and maybe, uh, to, again, in the interest of the country at the time, to make the best decisions. You know, if it was just my way or the highway, I mean, you're going to miss something. And so he consciously populated his cabinet of advisors with his, his opponents. And people thought he was crazy at the time, but at the end of the day, it was really about making sure you didn't miss something. Well, that's a talent as well, making sure you populate your leadership structure around you uh, with complementary styles and expertise and so forth. So the team is more powerful than any one. Can you give an example of a Difficult leadership lesson, maybe you had to learn the hard way. Sure. So one of the challenges of being a leader at this level, because usually people uh, who aspire and achieve this level um, are pretty, pretty confident people, mm -hmm. and they're problem solvers to begin with, and uh, somewhat impatient. There's a degree of impatience there, and that's not a bad thing for an administrator, um, and a desire to do well and to move forward quickly and, and just keep moving on, keep solve the next problem, bring it on, bring it on. Letting people make their own mistakes and learn from them is difficult. And that was one of the lessons I had had have to learn here. Uh, was one of, actually one of my colleagues who became made the transition from COO to CEO ahead of me, a few years ahead of me. I tapped him uh, for some insight and said, so what is the number one thing you've got to learn to do well um, when transitioning from operations to the chief executive role, and he shared with me, you gotta watch out for this. Don't solve all the problems yourself. Let people learn from their experiences and mistakes, even though you know it's a mistake. 
Mm-hmm. You've got to make sure it doesn't mm-hmm. negatively impact the organization. You still have the ability to veto or stop the, the process, but you've got to let them learn, and you can't tell them they have to know it. They have to learn it themselves. That's difficult. And I have learned that already. I've taken that into account and have had people you know, almost go down a path and I'm, I continually just ask them the questions and try and draw out it and so forth and then maybe do some of the things and they start to realize the error or the issue, that it, uh, the unanticipated issue it caused that I anticipated, but I can't just tell them no. That's, you know, not growing anybody that way. That's difficult, and that was probably the most challenging part to me is to let go of the desire to say, no, let's just do it the right way. I know it's the right way. I know you'll know it's the right way eventually, but no, to let them do it their way. The advantage also up in there is maybe they're gonna do it a little differently than I may have uh, assumed, and it was the right way, and there is an opportunity in there, so there's an advantage to that. At the very least, you know, a couple of times that's actually happened where Uh, Maybe I understood what somebody was going to do. They did it, and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to have to have this, what did we learn from this kind of conversation? But instead it was like, oh, that aspect I hadn't considered, so it actually works really well. And frankly, great, let's go forward. So it has worked out favorably, but there are at least one example I can think of where you know, we almost got to the point where we were pulling the trigger on something and I knew it was going to be a bad situation if we pulled the trigger, but I needed my senior director to, to know that herself. Yeah. So I let it get to that point and she stopped and came into my office and says, you know what, I've, I think I've rethought this and after thinking this all the way through. So I exhaled and said, <laughs> great, okay. glad, let's go in this direction instead. But that was probably the most challenging because I just wanted, I want to do, you know, I want to get this done and let's move on to the next problem and keep moving. But part of my job also is to grow the next level and, and develop and mentor people and that's what I really enjoy. But, uh, you know, there's some risk inherent in letting people on their own, but there's also value, great value in that. So speaking of sure. maybe mistakes, um, in your experience, where do junior leaders make mistakes? Do you see a pattern? Um, yeah, historically it's usually just it comes with the lack of experience and wisdom of, of especially ambitious folks, and I, I applaud ambition, you know, great. As much experience as you can gain as fast as possible, that's great for, for people who would aspire the, to this level. It's really about the lack of knowing limits or truly understanding that there's things you may not know. So I always recognize, I want to recognize, I'm sure there are things I don't yet know I don't know. And that's what I see as kind of a basic pattern is they think they know, okay, what's going on, but uh, there may be nuances or aspects of something they just haven't been exposed to before. And uh, so, you know, jumping forward very quickly um, that might lead somebody in the wrong direction, uh, you only gain with that, that experience. So uh, I think that's pretty natural. It's a natural evolution of the growth of, of wisdom, frankly. What leadership advice do you most often give junior leaders? Take the time to vet the idea uh, through your counterparts, peers, and colleagues. I mean, learn from other people's experiences. You don't have to do this on your own. Delegate the authority to actually execute it so that you don't have to do it on your own. Um, That's most of the time. You can get a lot more done through other people than doing it all yourself. But making sure it's the right thing to do. um, There's an amazing group of talent around New Hampshire, around the country, that are willing to 
offer advice and share their experiences and so forth, all you got to do is take the time to tap into it. I've found, I believe personally, that it's the stronger person who's willing to say, I don't know, I need help, than the person who says, I don't need help, and then makes mistakes, you know, or, or limits their ability to achieve the best outcome. Did you have a mentor early in your career? Absolutely. Number of them. Mentors? Actually, yeah, mentors. Well, how did, those per how did that person or per people help you develop as a leader? Well, again, my father was one. I mean, I, I watched him, how he behaved. It's just the sense of values that he you know, taught me as a child. I mean, that's where it originated. But then watching him as a, as a senior executive and a CEO of a hospital, it helped me recognize the, the importance of doing the right thing for the patients first. Everything else was secondary to that. You had to figure out how to manage the rest of it, but it was really about the, the commitment to the mission. Um, I had a number of other uh, mentors. I mentioned Jack May, um, who really taught me about, okay, how do you manage, uh, work with a board? How do you work with a system? How do you, how do you work a room? <laughs> you know, he was a great politician. Mm -hmm. I mean, he could mm -hmm. really, he, he was always smiling and always making friends. And how do you manage relationships, build and manage relationships? I had another gentleman, Ken Hughes, was a, a mentor of mine, a, a formal mentor of mine at uh, the EMHS days. And he just taught me a lot of the basics of, you know, okay, here's senior executive level stuff you got to be aware of, thinking about managing politics and thinking about you know, multiple aspects of any problem or solution. And impact analysis and so forth so but they all influence me in different ways now I always observe everybody I work with or for as well and what I try to do is you know analyze and recognize okay here's something I want to emulate and as much as and as important as wow I don't want to repeat that behavior you know here's the stuff I wouldn't want to do or be, be known for so um, I basically everybody I've ever worked for I've learned from Mm -hmm. And I try to do the same for folks that work for me too. So my next question yeah. was: Do you have do you mentor other leaders now? Yes. Um, and what do you get out of being a mentor? Well, actually, it's the pride. I mean, some of them, when when I'm asked often in an interview, you know, what's your proudest accomplishment? It's the people. It's, it's watching people achieve more than they thought they could, and knowing that I somehow contributed to doing that, to getting it, it, calling out that talent that was inherently in there and enabling it to, to come forth and flourish. That's, that's the proudest moments I have, is, is watching somebody maybe go from a director to a senior director, or you know, to an executive level, or, or achieve something they wanted to achieve, even if they didn't believe themselves that they were capable of doing it, just by asking questions and leading them to solutions, providing them resources and helping guide them along the way. That's, that's my favorite part. Are you mentoring anyone outside of AVH now? Uh, not formally currently, no, but I have many times, you know, yeah. as part of my role in, sure. in the college and as a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives, I, I've taken on mentor projects as well. But internally, is you know, I've got a, a few relatively new senior directors that I'm mentoring directly and growing them because, again, I think part of our obligation as healthcare leaders is to ensure the, uh, the next generation of leadership. So you mentioned the American College of Healthcare Executives. Yes. How, that, that's a professional organization yes. for healthcare executives, obviously. 
How has your membership in that organization been significant to you as a professional? It's it's a great networking resource. Um, you know, attending the clusters or attending the uh, uh, the sessions, and then the regional chapter, the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives, is a great way to just connect with other people in a similar role. At same, you know. It's, it's how we tap into the talent around the region and saying, have you ever dealt with this? What would you do in this case? You know, what are some ideas? It's how we share innovations and best practices. That networking is probably the most substantially uh, important. Beyond that's the education. I mean, uh, now as a fellow, I have to keep my certification up and, and that's a requirement, but it's also, again, I enjoy the lifelong learning, going to hear from the expert speakers and so forth about uh, topics that the college provides reasonably priced and, and available. So it, it forces that, but also it is an opportunity to continue to learn. So that's, a, that's why I like the college very much. Being a member of the college also requires adherence to a set of ethics. And frankly, that's, I live by them. I mean, I think I need to demonstrate them as well. And it, it allows me that kind of structure that uh, I can always depend on. I'm thinking about how do I make certain decision? Well, let's pull out the college's code of ethics and they're, you know, entrenched in my values alone. But, you know, you can read these things and, and be guided a little bit. And the college provides that source of, uh, of resource from across the country. Some of the best minds in our industry put these together and refine them and contemporize them every year. So it's an amazing resource. If you had to pick one book for an early careerist healthcare administrator to read, what would you recommend? Well, there, I, I, there are probably two. Okay. Uh, if I, if I, I'm not sure I could pick one. Okay. One is Who's The Servant. There? Servant Leadership? The Servant, yeah, by uh, James Hunter. Oh, The Servant. The Servant. Okay. Yep. It's really, it's a parable, and uh, Jim Hunter wrote it. So it's a fairly easy read, but it really talks about this concept of servant leadership. And it's a, it makes you... St- up and think about your own style and what you're in leadership for. So that's that's definitely one. The other one, honestly, I, I really like a lot is Fred Lee. Fred Lee's uh, "If Disney Ran Your Hospital," and uh, just one of those books that makes you stop and think about what are we really chasing? Why are we doing this? And how do we get best get to the results we want? Um, it's hard to argue that Disney knows what it's doing in terms of managing an experience. So yeah. um, this is really about uh, pulling that all together, but tying it to the, you know, the embedded values within healthcare as an industry and uh, getting people to do the right things for the right reason because they believe it's the right thing to do, not because they're in fear of non-compliance if they don't, you know what I mean? But uh, Fred Lee does a, a great job of talking about things like compassion and so forth in that book. So I'd highly recommend either or both of those books. Oh, last question. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for early careerists who are planning a career in healthcare administration? Get plenty of sleep now. No, I'm just saying. I would think that they would be best served to build their network, you know, build relationships spend time shadowing people, get to know as many people in the healthcare organization, but also look inwardly and say, why are you doing this? What's important to you? What's motivating you to be a healthcare leader? These are not easy jobs, but it's some of the most rewarding, as I had hoped, most rewarding work you can ever imagine. I mean, being able to make a difference in people's lives daily is really important. It's a privilege to be able to take care of people when they're vulnerable, scared, hurt, sick, don't want the service you're providing, it's an honor 
to, to work with the talent, the, uh, the, the physicians, the clinicians, the nurses who sacrifice so much of themselves to take care of the patients every day. Being the leader of an organization that allows that to happen is an incredibly rewarding job. So I would highly recommend that they make sure that that's what they are in this for. This is not prestigious and you're never going to get rich doing this stuff. Some people do, but that's, you know, in a, in a usually non-profit, small community hospitals. Mm -hmm. But it, define, it depends on how you determine wealth. If you want to go home at night feeling like you have made a difference, uh, this is a great job. And as long as you're comfortable, you know, with some stressful situations and dealing with dynamics. I mean, if you don't deal well with change, wrong industry, go, go do something else. But if you do and are willing to stay committed to your core sense of values and the mission of the organization resonates with you, the vision of the organization you're inspired by, then go lead it. That's the, it's the best job on the planet as far as I'm concerned. I know it sounds a little cliche, but there is no better, more rewarding job than, than being a part of taking care of people, making a difference in their lives. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. No problem. Thanks very much. I appreciate your time, too. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.